today's passage is Galatians 3, 19 through 25. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You can be seated. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we do pray that you would bless not just the preaching of your word, but its reading as well. We pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to, to see the truth and the beauty of your great gospel. We pray that you would provide for us exactly what we need, especially if it's not what we want. So if we don't want to be convicted, would you convict us? If we are down and we don't believe encouragement is possible, would you encourage us through your word? And ultimately, we pray that your gospel would be clear, that we would believe it, and that we would find joy and rest in it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians three nineteen through 25. Paul asks two questions that are related to the same idea. First, Paul asks, why then the law? And second, Paul asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So two questions that Paul asks. If this is your first Sunday with us, you're, you're probably, whenever you're, any, any time really that you jump into a letter in, in the middle of it, you're going to be wanting for some context. And especially here in Galatians, verse 19 is not going to be as significant for you if you haven't been with us this entire time. When he asks, why then the law? This is a climactic moment. We have been waiting for this for a while now because Paul's idea of free grace, we've said the last few weeks, it makes us squirm a little bit because we always have in the back of our minds, well, yes, but the law is still there. And if the law cannot save, and if the law is not added to the promise, and if we don't have to obey in order to get in on God's eternal blessing that he promised to Abraham, then why is it there? So to take you back a few weeks, especially if this is your first time here with us, Paul has been arguing that we are saved by promise, not by performance. God has promised to save us through Jesus And we receive salvation, not by working for it, by simply believing the promise. Simple faith in Jesus is all it takes. The law and the promise we have seen are on separate planes. They are just different from one another. The law has not replaced the covenant promise of future salvation through Jesus that was originally made to Abraham. The law, Paul has said, cannot save. But he's also said it was never meant to save. In fact, Paul says, back in 
Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, that we remain under God's curse if we pursue salvation by performance. If we try to earn our salvation, we will remain under God's curse. But what we've learned from Paul in Galatians 3.13 is that Christ himself has redeemed us from the curse of the law and we inherit salvation and blessing and a glorious future simply by believing the gospel promise. And as I said, at this point, most people who have been tracking with, with Galatians we ask this very question that Paul is proposing. We ask, if we are saved by faith alone in the gospel promise, not by works of the law, why was the law given in the first place? But really, when we start thinking about that question, and we start thinking longer and harder about the relationship between the law and the promise that was made to Abraham, we're ultimately led to ask Paul's second question. Not just why is the law there, but since the law is there, we ask, if the law doesn't change the promise, Paul's already said that, if it doesn't change the promise through annulment or addition, is the law opposed to the gospel promise? Is the law evil? Is it, is it fighting against the gospel promise? Now, these questions are not just a theological exercise. It's not just something that seminary, you know, nerds geek out on, okay? This is a highly relevant question for Christians living in Tupelo in 2020. It gets down to questions like this. Are works opposed to grace? If we are saved by grace, do we really need to bother with obedience? If the law... And, and as an extension from the law, all the commands of Scripture, the calls to obedience, if they are at odds with the gospel promise, then I promise you we have reason to ignore those parts of Scripture entirely. If they are working against the gospel promise, we can leave them behind to an era that is in the past. Paul's argument, to sum it up, in Galatians 3, 19 through 25, is that the gospel and the law are different, but they are not enemies. Paul helps us see that Christianity is complex. We want things to remain simple for us, but Christianity is not simple in this way. It is complex. It is a complex idea, and it contains a very unique paradox. Think about it for a second. We believe in justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But we also believe that the faith that saves shows us or shows itself to be true through our works. So the faith alone the faith alone in Christ alone cannot end up being alone. It must produce works in order to be validated as true saving faith. That's a paradox. We believe that gospel faith and obedience to commands should be present in a Christian's life. So this is where we need to be careful because due to this paradoxical nature of the Christian life, we are prone to misunderstand the gospel in one of two ways. The first, the first way, the first error, the first way we're prone to misunderstand the gospel, it has a name and it's called legalism. Legalism. Legalism is, is the error, the idea that obedience 
is required for acceptance. You don't really belong unless you follow the rules. Legalism says, God is gracious and saves me in Jesus on the condition that I follow the rules. He holds out a promise, but but there's a condition attached to it. You better be good enough. That's what these false teachers in Galatia were, were spreading. This idea that, yes, faith in Jesus is necessary, but you also have to be circumcised if you really want to get in on God's blessing. If you really want to get in on God's people, you also have to follow the law. It's called legalism. There's another error, another way that we are prone to misunderstand the gospel. And it's a, it's a longer word. I was going to spell it for you. I thought about putting it on the screen, but I'm too lazy for that. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that. Um, but it's called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Don't worry about it right now. I know some of you are like, <laughs> okay, yeah, never mind. Um, don't check out, though, okay? The, the word is long, but the idea is simple, okay? Don't, don't check out on me just because I use that word. I'll, I'll send an email later, all right? Um, antinomianism. I guess I could have spelled it after explaining all of that anyway. Uh, Josh has me on a time limit, so we better watch it. Um, antinomianism, all right? This is the idea that obedience isn't required at all. It isn't required at all. It, is, it comes from the word anti-law, essentially, anti-law. So antinomianism says, God is gracious, and he has saved me in Jesus, so I can do whatever I want, because there are no rules. I can do whatever I want. So now these two different and opposite ways of misunderstanding the gospel, they are actually alike in one really important way. And this one way is what makes them both equally opposite of the gospel. Both legalism and antinomianism elevate the self. You elevate yourself. When you're a legalist, you you elevate yourself when you believe in antinomianism. Here's how it works. Legalism exalts the self. You exalt yourself as a legalist by asserting that you are capable of saving yourself. I'm capable. Now, what a legalist typically does is he will go to God's law, and anyone who goes to God's law eventually comes to a place where they can't keep it. So a legalist will make their own law. They will make their own rules. Oh, the the Bible says that we are to rest on the Sabbath. Well, here's what it means to rest on the Sabbath, and they create a list, and you have to follow those rules just as one example. Antinomianism, on the other hand, it exalts the self by asserting that you are the captain of your own life, that you are the master of the universe, and no one can tell you how to live your life. You are in full control. So what we see here through these two errors is that we will either squirm at the idea of free grace because we feel the need to contribute to our salvation, or we will love the idea of free grace because we don't want to change. But the gospel comes in. And the gospel, in its simplicity and in its complexity, the gospel saves us from both legalism and antinomianism in in two ways. Two ways. First, the gospel covers us. We've seen this throughout Galatians. The gospel covers us. It answers the error of legalism through the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus in our place. Jesus was righteous in his life, and he died to bear the wrath of God so that we might be justified by simple faith in him. The gospel covers us. It covers our sin. But, but, this, this paradox, 
this complexity, the gospel doesn't just cover us, the gospel changes us. So the gospel answers the error of antinomianism through the transforming power of God's grace in Jesus. As, as I was reading, I, I came across 1 Peter 2. I typically don't like to go outside of Galatians unless it just really connects, and I think this does. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and 24, uh, Peter writes this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see the complexity in those two verses. How in the death of Jesus, yes, he suffers for us, for our sins. He takes our place as our substitute and he covers us forever. But he is also our example and he transforms us. And as we see his body on the tree, we die to our sin and we live to righteousness. Now, as we approach this passage, these questions about the law, we need to be honest about something. Some of us in this room need to repent for elevating ourselves in the form of legalism. Some of us need to repent of legalism. We need to repent for believing that we are good enough, that we are good enough to cover our own sins through obedience. But, no doubt, some of us probably need to repent for elevating ourselves in the form of antinomianism. It may be subtle. You may not think that you can just do whatever you want. But we need to repent for thinking that we can accept God's grace to cover us without accepting that God's grace changes us. If we are glad to be covered by God's grace but refuse to change, we misunderstand the gospel. So as we consider in this passage the role of the law and obedience, the role that they play in our lives as Christians, as those who are saved by grace through faith alone, we need to tread carefully so that we do not fall into one of these two errors. If we don't consider the relationship between the promise of the gospel and God's expectations for our lives carefully, we will either misunderstand the gospel by belittling God's grace or we will misunderstand the gospel by abusing God's grace. Paul is essentially asking the question I know many of you have been prompted to ask throughout Galatians. If we are saved unilaterally by God's grace alone, which we merely receive as a gift by faith and without any effort or contribution from us, why are law and commands in the Bible? A song we're going to sing later. If Jesus really did pay it all, is there anything we are supposed to do? Or can we just live however we want? So, two considerations in this passage. First, how does the law relate to the gospel? How does the law relate to the gospel? And second, how should the Christian relate to the law? So how does the law relate to the gospel? And then second, how should the Christian relate to the law? And we're going to answer those questions by taking Paul's questions one by one. Lots of questions this morning. It's a lovely day. All right, are you ready? All right, question number one in verse 19. We can rephrase it. Why was the law given? Why then the law? Why was the law given? Simple answer. I, I rephrased this a million times, and, you know, believe it or not, I ended up landing on what Paul actually says here. So here's the simple answer because of sin because of sin 
Now, I would love to just move on to point number two and just leave it at that, but that doesn't really, it, it, it leaves a lot of, of wanting for us. We, we want Paul to go deeper into this. So we have to do a little bit of explaining. But the simple answer to Paul's simple question, why was the law given? The law was give, given because of sin. We can initially say the law was only given because of sin in the hearts of people. So we can reverse that and say, had there been no sin, there would be no need for the law. Now, in order to explain the reason for the giving of the law, Paul describes both the nature and the purposes of the law. Let's, let's look at verses 19 through 22 together. Paul writes, why then the law? And he answers, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary or a mediator. Your translation may say, verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All right, let's stop there. So he, he discusses the nature of the law and the purposes of the law. So let's take those one by one. First, the nature of the law. The nature of the law. Here's what we can say about the law. First, the law is from God. The law is from God. Some actually come to this passage and they see that since the law was given through mediators, angels, and Moses, we would say, that somehow God was uninvolved with the giving of the law. This couldn't be further from the truth. The law is from God. So what can we say about the law? Paul has a lot of negative things to say about the law, but Paul would also have in Romans and other places a lot of positive things to say about the law. The law is holy. The law is pure. The law is good. The law actually flows from God's grace, not from his contempt. It wasn't just that God had a bad few thousand years, you know, where he was just like, you know, I'm going to give this law to make these people sin like crazy, you know, and they're going to feel so guilty for so long. I mean, no, he's not maniacal. This isn't from contempt. This is from God's grace, as we're going to see in a second. But we can initially say the law is from God. Second, we can say that the law is different from the promise. And that's what Paul really wants to highlight here, that the law is different from the promise. First, we can say that the law carried a temporary purpose, whereas the promise is never-ending. The promise that's held out, the promise for future blessing, that is in place forever. Okay, but, but the law was temporary. Let's, let's look at it really quickly. First, we see that the law was added the law was added. Why then the law? It was added. It was not eternal like some Jews uh, believe. Uh, the Jewish tradition believes that the law is eternal. The law is not eternal. The law was added in time. But we can also say that the law's purpose ended as it was fulfilled with the coming of Christ. Do you notice that in verse 19? It says, it was added because of transgressions. And then Paul writes, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. If you haven't been with us, then you wouldn't see this. But if you have been with us, you obviously know he's referring to Jesus. Back in verse 16, he makes that clear. So until Jesus comes, the law was added because of transgressions. And then he says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law always, always anticipated the coming of Jesus. So it, it was temporary. But Paul also says that the law was given through a mediator. Whereas the promise was given directly to Abraham. Now, this part of this passage is very difficult to interpret. I'm not even going to go into all the different options. There's actually one guy who sees over 300 different valid ways you can see this, you can interpret this passage. I do not even want to see his list. I don't want to see it. I don't care. Um, 
But just to say, the translation of this passage, the interpretation of this passage, it's just, it's just really difficult. We're not sure what it means. And you probably feel that as you read it, especially as you read uh, verse, verse 20, where it says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. No explanation there. He just says it and just drops it, drops the mic and just heads out. It's like, what in the world are you saying here? Why? It feels so out of place. I don't know exactly how he's, he's moving his argument along. Here's what I'll say. The law was given through a mediator. And he's highlighting the difference because the promise was given directly to Abraham. So the law involved multiple parties. So as the law was given, the law was given through angels and it was given through a mediator, Moses. Whereas when, a- when God makes a promise to Abraham, he comes very close to Abraham, and it's just straight from God to Abraham the promise is given. The promise is given to Abraham. Abraham's taking the promise to no one, and then all of Abraham's offspring is included in that promise. But it's given directly. So there aren't multiple parties. It's just from God to Abraham. So it was a covenant that required... Well, no. So the law involved multiple parties, though. So it was given through angels and Moses, and it was a covenant that required faithfulness from both God and the people. So when the law was given, there were expectations on God and the people. So God had to be faithful to the people, but the people had to be faithful to keep the law. That was the nature of, of that covenant. And so there are two parties involved in this. However, when God makes a promise to Abraham, there are no conditions. There are no conditions. It's not waiting on Abraham to be really faithful before the promise will remain true. It's just, is God going to be faithful to keep his promise? It was a covenant that required God's faithfulness alone. So the law was given through a mediator, whereas the promise was given directly to Abraham. I think that's what Paul's hinting at whenever he says an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Maybe. I don't know. It may, that may not be true. Um, but that, it, makes, it makes sense to me. So, so we'll leave it there. Maybe There are 300 other options in case you want to look those up. So the nature of the law, to, to, to review that, the nature of the law, two, two ideas. The law is from God, and the law is different from the promise. Now, what you've all been waiting for, the purposes of the law. To answer Paul's question, why then the law? Why was the law given? And, and he simply says the law was given because of sin, because of transgressions. Now, as he explains throughout, you know, all the way to verse 25, we can draw out at least three purposes of the law. At least three purposes of the law. Purpose number one, the law reveals human sin and God's character. The law reveals human sin and God's character. So the law clarified the nature of human sin. One, and your translation may say this, but there, one way to translate verse 19 where it says, it was added because of transgressions, a valid way to, to translate that is, it was added for the sake of transgressions. And the idea behind that is that sins become transgressions when God's law is present. So, before God's law came, anyone who violated the character, the nature, the will of God, they are sinning against God. And they may know that they're sinning against God because of the moral conscience that's given to us through common grace. But when God's law is present, you know, Paul, when he said, I didn't know what it meant, I didn't, I didn't know what coveting meant until I, until I read, do not covet. When the law comes into place, it takes a sin and turns it into a transgression. Now, you aren't just sinning because you're not aligning your heart with God's purposes or God's will, you are sinning because you are expressly violating a clear command of Scripture. 
So God's judgment ramps up. So, yeah, for example, people know in their hearts through common grace it's wrong to murder. We all know that. It's wrong. It's wrong to murder. But the law clearly commands what? Do not murder. And so the law was given for the sake of transgression. Here's what this does for us, though. The law was given to wake us up to the reality of our sin. It clarifies our sin. It shows us clearly where we have this kind of vague, well, you know, the people, this is probably wrong. I'm not really sure. Is this right? I'm not really sure, but I feel like this is wrong. Why do I feel that way? Here comes the law. The law clarifies that. This is what sin looks like. The law then, so many different writers gave this illustration. I didn't even want to quote it or attribute it because so many gave this illustration, but the law is like an MRI, The law is like an MRI. The law is like an x-ray. It reveals the problem. It shows you where you are deficient. It shows you where you are sick. But, as Paul's going to argue later in this very passage, the law is unable to solve the problem. The law is unable to heal. It provides diagnosis, but it cannot heal. John Stott, he puts it this way. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. So as the law is given, it's given because of sin to show us just how sinful we really are. Okay, so the law reveals human sin, and it reveals God's character since we are failing to live up to the standard that he has set. Second purpose. The law restrained sin. The law restrained sin. So if you go down in the passage, starting in verse 23. Is that where I want to start? 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So Paul begins sharing a number of metaphors for the law. And the first metaphor here that we see in verse 24 anyway is that the law was given to be a guardian or a tutor. Okay, so a guardian was was essentially at this time in the Greco-Roman culture a slave who was basically like a caretaker for the children. And so this person would would uh, you know manage the household with the children, would would teach the children essentially like a tutor would, telling them what to do, all this managing the the home, especially related to the children. So as the law revealed God's character, it revealed God's desires for his people, and the law taught the people of Israel how they were supposed to live. The law also contained this sacrificial system, which was a gracious means of God's forbearance as sins were temporarily yet imperfectly atoned for. So John Calvin, John Calvin, he he wrote a lot about this idea. He believed that the law functioned as a restrainer of evil to keep people from being bad as they might become. And this is what Calvin wrote. They are restrained not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because bridled, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity and hold inside the depravity that otherwise they would have indulged. Consequently, they are neither better nor more righteous before God. Hindered by fright or shame, they dare neither execute what they have conceived in their minds, nor openly breathe for the rage of their lust. So essentially, as the people of Israel have the law, and they they come to the law, whether it's through fear of punishment, whether it's through shame, or just because it's it's in the law, it it restrained them from evil. So that's that's another purpose that, that the law served. 
the last purpose I'm going to discuss, and then we'll move on from this idea. The law imprisoned all things under sin. The law imprisoned all things under sin. So we're introduced to another metaphor here. The law as a prison. The law as a prison. Another metaphor we could see here, the law as a slave driver. And we see this in verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What, what, is, what is Paul getting at here? The law was given because of sin, which means the law was given to imprison all things under sin. Here's what it means. The law makes demands that we cannot keep. So it holds us captive like a prison. The law accentuates our guilt. The law created a situation we could not escape through the law. The law creates a situation. It it boxes us in. It binds us up. And we cannot escape by appealing to the law itself. So just when an Israelite felt really good about his obedience to one part of the law, he would find himself in violation of another part of the law. He could not escape. This imprisonment, this slavery, Paul says, should have been expected, though, because the law was never meant to give life or produce righteousness. Acceptance by God could never come through law obedience, mainly because that was never the plan. Before Christ came, Paul says here, there was no intrinsic inner heart motivation for people to align their lives with the desires and purposes of God. What we know, though, later, with the coming of Christ, that Christ fulfilled the law, that he established a new covenant in his sacrificial death in our place, this covenant that's prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah meant that the law would one day be written on our hearts. So in Christ, we are set free from the law's prison and given new hearts that can now beat in sync with the will of God. However, however, when the law was given until this time of fulfillment, the law functioned as a prison, clarifying human guilt, sinfulness, and inability to be what God designed humanity to be. Now, quick question. Why does all this matter? Why does all this matter for Paul, especially? How does this help his defense of the gospel against legalism? Well, by saying that the law was given because of sin, Paul is making this simple and clear point that the law was never meant to be used how these false teachers were attempting to use it. It was never meant to be used that way. They weren't just missing the beauty of the gospel. They were missing the purpose of the law. The law cannot complete salvation because the law wasn't given by God to complete salvation. The law didn't add to the gospel promise because the law was given for a separate purpose than the gospel promise. So Paul would agree with the false teachers about the law's nature, that it was from God, that it was holy, that it was pure, that it was good. But he could not disagree more with them about the law's purpose. The law was given not to provide acceptance with God, but because of sin. The law revealed sin, restrained sin, imprisoned humanity, all to cause us to long for something more. To long for a day when the law would turn from a foe to a friend. To long for the day where there will be a fully realized freedom. In the end, the law was given to show us our need 
for a savior to show us that we cannot measure up on our own. So that's the first question. Why was the law given? It was given because of sin. Second question. Is the law opposed to the promise? Is the law opposed to the promise? Paul asked that question here in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And here's his simple answer. No. The law is a friend of the gospel promise, not an enemy. The law is a friend of the gospel promise, not an enemy. So Paul's wanting us to see here that the law demonstrated our need for salvation by promise by showing us that salvation cannot come by performance. All right? The law demonstrated our need for salvation by promise because it shows us that salvation cannot come by performance. The law, then, confronts our pride and our self-righteousness. When we take the law seriously, we are driven away from our pride. The law is, quite frankly, humiliating. Because just when you feel good about your religious performance... When you take the law seriously, you consider the law or any of the commands of Scripture, it whispers in your ear, you're still not good enough. You're still not good enough. You still don't measure up. The law serves the gospel because it is a relentless reminder of our deep need for a Savior. You can't do it, the law says. You're not enough, the law reminds us. But as enslaving as the law is, even though it is true that the law functions as a prison, this very function pushes us toward the good news of the gospel. The gospel frees us to gladly agree with the law. You're right. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. You, you're right. I don't deserve to belong to God's family, but in Christ, he has adopted me. The law always anticipated the coming of Jesus. Paul could not be clearer when he writes, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The promise was made to Jesus. And the law always anticipated fulfillment in his coming. That's why Paul writes in this very passage, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, you see the purpose here, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's why Paul writes here. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Here's the purpose. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I can't say it any better than, than John Stott, so I'm going to quote him at length here. John Stott writes, No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law was bruised, has bruised and smitten us 
Will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds? Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. The law serves a clear purpose. It shows us that we do not measure up and that our sin does deserve judgment from a holy God, which only serves to advance the gospel promise. That salvation is not found through performance or, or uh, yeah, religious performance. The gospel saves us from our sin on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place. Last consideration then. Well, what do we do with it then? If that's the purpose that it served to show us our need for a Savior, when we start our Bible reading plans and we get to Exodus and then we get to Leviticus and we get to Deuteronomy, what do we do with the law? What do we do with it? You get to the commands of the New Testament. What do you do when there's just a clear command from Jesus? Let's, let's consider this. The first thing we have to consider, though, is that we have a new relationship toward the law. And this helps us as we, as we read the law in the scriptures. We have a new relationship toward the law because of Jesus. So let's, let's consider this really quickly. With the coming of Christ, both the promise to Abraham and the law of Moses find fulfillment. A new age has dawned in salvation history. A new covenant has been established by the blood of Jesus. So by faith in Jesus, we receive all that has been promised to Abraham. And we are set free from the law and sin. The law, Paul writes, could not give life. It could not provide righteousness. But both life and righteousness are found through faith in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the gospel promise and the law meet. Not only did Jesus perfectly keep the law, but he also took the curse that we deserve for breaking the law. And by dying in our place, Jesus took the judgment that our sin deserves. And by simple faith in him, we receive his righteousness. So now that Christ has come, and now that we are no longer under the law as a guardian, that we have been set free from the law as a prison, our relationship to it is completely different as those who are free in Christ. So now at this point, we're faced with an important choice. So since our relationship to the law has changed, our response to the law is different. But what will it be? So here are a few wrong responses to the law. Wrong response number one. You try to keep the law in addition to faith in Jesus as a way to be accepted by God that yes, I need to believe in Jesus, but also I need to obey every single thing that he says. And if I do not obey every single thing that he says, I'm not really in. I'm not really in the family. That is wrong. This is turning salvation by promise into salvation by performance. Okay? Wrong response number two. You just ignore all the commands of Scripture since we are saved by grace. Now, that's antinomianism. We already talked about it. We could wrongly reason that since we are saved by promise and not performance, that obedience is optional. Since we can do nothing to merit salvation, we wrongly conclude that as long as we have Jesus, we can live however we want. And that's wrong. That's, that's not a proper response to the law. Wrong response number three. 
And this one's more subtle, and you may be guilty of this, but you haven't thought about it. You ignore the commands in the Old Testament. So this is a more moderate rejection of the law, and it involves us only striving to obey the commands of Jesus and the apostles. So, but, but we reject the commands that are in the Old Testament. But this approach is still wrong, mainly because most of the commands in the New Testament are rooted in the commands in the Old Testament. So we don't just have the option, just because Jesus has come, to just unhitch ourselves entirely from every single thing that's in the Old Testament. We, we don't have the right to do that. And finally, one more wrong approach, and this is common in churches, you just create new laws. You, you read the laws that are in the Bible, and you summarize them, and you summarize their essence. This is what it's getting at. And then, from there, you look at your church, you look at your own life, and you make a new list. I, in order for me to really be in as God's people, I need to follow these rules. That is an improper approach to the law as well. Now, as we read the commands of the Bible, particularly the law of Moses, I do think there is a healthy approach to it. I do think there's a healthy approach to the law, and this is what I would suggest, this, this approach in four steps. The way that you should approach the law. So let's say you're in your Bible reading plan, you're reading through Exodus, or you're reading through Deuteronomy, you come across laws, it could be moral laws, it could be civil laws, it could be ceremonial laws, I'm not, I'm not going to differentiate at this point, that's for an article maybe later, um, or, or you're reading the New Testament and you come across a command from Jesus in the scriptures. What should we do? First, behold God's character. Behold his glory. Behold the glorious standard that God has set for his people. And see in it, why is it? Why does God say, do not murder? And reflect on his life-giving nature. So, so see God's character. Second, see your own sin. God's desire for our lives is not naturally our desire for our lives. Sin distorts our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. So when you are confronted with a command from Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, reflect on the reason that particular command was given and why you need it. Why do I need to be commanded to love God and neighbor? Because I don't naturally love God. I don't naturally love my neighbor. Why do I need to be commanded to love my enemies? That's an easy one, because I'm naturally disposed to hate my enemies, not love them. And see your sin. Even, even with the ceremonial laws about cleansing and sacrifices, consider why was purity necessary for communion with God, and why don't I meet the standard that he has set? John Calvin says that the law functions like a mirror. He says, in it we contemplate our weakness, then the iniquity arising from this, and finally, the curse coming from both, just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. So as you read the law, as you read the commands of Scripture, see your own sin. Step number three, delight in Jesus. The coming of Jesus radically transforms our Bible reading. So, because Jesus has come, we read all of Scripture through a gospel-centered lens that culminates in the coming of Christ. So when you are met with a command of Scripture, meditate on how Jesus fulfilled that law or the essence behind that law. Consider the holiness of Jesus and then look to him with eyes of faith, gladly and gratefully trusting him as the one who was what you fail to be and who atoned perfectly 
for your sin. So may your, your reading of the law cause you to look to Jesus in faith. Finally, last step, obey. Strive to become what God wants you to become through obedience. So just to be clear, obedience to God is not work for which we hope to receive a wage of salvation. We do not obey the commands of Scripture in order to be accepted by God. Instead, we obey the commands of Scripture because we have been accepted by God. Now, at this point, if we had more time, we could go ahead and get into the divisions of the Old Testament law and, you know, what are we supposed to do with the, the civil law that, that went to the governing of, of Israel? What do we do with the ceremonial law, with the sacrificial system and all of that? Uh, we don't have time for it today, but just basically, when you approach any command of Scripture, may your dis- disposition to be to obey what you read. Not as a way to earn acceptance, but because you already have it. This is what Calvin writes about this. It's really helpful. Here is the best instrument for Christians to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it. It is as if some servant already prepared with all earnestness of heart to commit himself to his master must search out and observe his master's ways more carefully in order to conform himself to them. For no man has attained to such wisdom as to be unable from the daily instruction of the law to make fresh progress toward a pure knowledge of the divine will. By frequent meditation upon the law, the Christian will be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of sin." The gospel radically changes our relationship to the law. Once we come to accept Jesus by faith and realize that salvation is promised as a gift fulfilled in Jesus, we are set free from the law's slavery. So understanding and walking in gospel freedom will disrupt and change the culture of our church for the good. When you walk in gospel freedom, it will disrupt any legalistic attitudes that are in your own heart or in our church. It will become uncomfortable. We will start to squirm. When we rightly understand how the gospel reorients us toward the law, we will see how the gospel reorients us toward one another. When you know, think about this, when you know that you and I are accepted by promise, and not by performance, yet at the same time are called to pursue holiness out of love, we will be able to walk wisely in the complexity of Christianity together. We will be able to push one another toward Christ-likeness in love. We will value holiness, and at the same time, we will denounce judgmentalism. We will accept and love one another in Christ freely and unconditionally and humbly while at the same time helping each other follow Jesus, which will sometimes include confession and repentance and forgiveness. The free grace of God in the gospel will either be a catalyst for change or it will be a stumbling block, both for you individually and our church. If we hold on to the guardianship and the imprisonment of the law through legalism, we will end up creating new standards for one another, as legalists do. If we misunderstand the purpose of the law and thereby misunderstand the purpose of the gospel, we will enslave one another and our church will become more like a prison than a home. 
you're constantly looking over your shoulder to make sure no one's looking at what you're doing in your life. But this is my hope. This is my prayer. And this is where we're heading together. If we receive the gospel promise by faith in Jesus, we will not only be covered, but we will be changed day by day as we seek to conform ourselves and one another to God's desires for his people, and we will be able to pursue this noble task freely out of love for one another and God's word.